Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. Four months into shelter-in-place restrictions in California, low-income and undocumented people continue struggling to avoid coronavirus and stay financially afloat. While workers want to provide for their families, they know they are taking a serious health risk. And many immigrants, even if they want to stay away from work, can't afford to. Many immigrants and undocumented people don't qualify for government benefits, and private resources are starting to dry up. We'll discuss the mounting challenges vulnerable immigrant communities are facing amid the coronavirus pandemic. And that's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In California, where more than a quarter of residents are foreign-born, Many low-income and undocumented immigrants have dealt with heavy burdens during the coronavirus pandemic. The biggest challenges involve high infection rates, loss of income, and feeling forced to continue working in a high-risk environments. Many programs designed to give financial assistance to undocumented workers are running dry as the pandemic persists. And meanwhile, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the federal agency that processes immigration applications, plans to furlough more than two-thirds of its staff in coming months due to budget cuts. That move could significantly delay citizenship and green card applications, as well as asylum cases. And we're going to discuss how low-income and undocumented immigrants in California are faring during the coronavirus. Joining us, Farida Jabvalo Romero, immigration reporter with KQED News. And welcome, Farida. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Good morning to you. And let me also say good morning to Carolina Martin Ramos, who is Director of Programs and Advocacy with Centro Legal de la Raza. Welcome, Carolina. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good to have you. And good also to have Dania Joseph, immigrant uh, rights advocate and DACA recipient. Welcome to the program, Dania Joseph. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have all of you. And uh, Farida, let me begin with you. Uh, just a general picture we have here. This is really extremely difficult, uh, not only for the low-income in immigrant workers, but uh, obviously for the undocumented. They're hardest hit in this pandemic and uh, share probably the greatest number of COVID cases, though we don't even know the number of COVID cases. Um, and, and so many don't want to get tested because they're fearful of, well, not working. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I would say immigrants and um, low income and undocumented immigrants especially have been really hard hit during the pandemic. I mean, there's two things to um, remember here. If we think about 
the economy. Immigrants are overrepresented in industries that have been devastated by the pandemic. We're talking about people who work in restaurants and hotels and in-home childcare, cleaning services. And then at the same time, many immigrants, especially the undocumented, if they lose all of their income, they don't have access to the safety net that other people have, like unemployment insurance benefits. Even though they pay um, taxes. Even though they even though they pay taxes, exactly. And so I do want to note that there are California state programs like paid family leave and disability insurance that workers can get regardless of their immigration status. But as we've seen with the backlog of unemployment claims these days, you know, it could take a long time to get those. So it might not be, you know, uh, available if you if you do get sick with COVID or if you um, immediately and or if you lose your job. A lot of those funds and, and resources are simply drying up, aren't they? So we've heard um, that there's been an overwhelming response because the need is so great um, uh, when funds are available to help uh, people who have been uh, hit what, with COVID uh, or have been you know, impacted by the pandemic. Um, and uh, especially for undocumented folks, like California just ended last month um, uh, their application process for uh, $75 million that the governor put aside to help undocumented immigrants who've been uh, impacted by the pandemic. And the response there was just huge, you know, and because the need is so great out there. And we have reports that, you know, many people were able to get this, what it turned out to be, you know, per person was like a $500 one-time grant. Uh, which is not nearly enough, you know, to to survive in the Bay Area for many months. Uh, but uh, but a lot of people, you know, were left um, without able without being able to to get that that help, even though they need it. So we've seen we saw an overwhelming response there with the with the state funds, and then there's other uh, funds, you know, uh, with. Uh, private donations that cities, counties, local governments have uh, sort of put together and then also nonprofits. And what we're hearing there is that there's just not enough money to meet the need. And yet there are resources. One of the problems, though, is that many of the undocumented people don't know about the resources or they don't know how to tap into them. That yes, I mean it's difficult. Even if you do have access to internet, you know, to know what's going on, and yeah. then um, uh, you know, many people may be afraid if they're undocumented, especially, to come forward and say they need that help, you know. And so, so there's a number of barriers that existed before the pandemic, you know, to get resources if you need them. But 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 now they're just exacerbated. I'd say. Frida Javala Romero with us, immigration reporter for KQED News, and Carolina Martin Ramos is director of programs and advocacy with Central Legal de la Raza. And you advocates uh, are doing this without much funding, uh, I think, uh, if I can state it that way, Carolina. And uh, cash assistance for those who are out of work uh, has been very difficult. That's right. Um, so early on in this pandemic, we knew right away that um, the folks in our community and the folks that we serve um, were already vulnerable, were already vulnerable uh, to uh, the virus, but also really um, not really vulnerable because they weren't eligible for a lot of benefits and resources in our regular safety nets. Um, and so early on, um, our, one of our directors from our workers' rights program um, had the foresight to start pulling together uh, what we called our fund. And um, he was able to work 
with other uh, nonprofit partners and also um, the city of Oakland and um, private funders to put together this fund where we were able to give cash assistance in, of approximately $500 to undocumented workers who otherwise were ineligible for the EDD funds um, and um, you know, unemployment if they had uh, lost their work. And many of the folks that we work with are also uh, workers from the informal sector, so undocumented laborers. And um, we're, you know, we were seeing that not only were they uh, vulnerable to losing work and uh, poverty, but also that triggered, you know, homelessness. We also have a tenants' rights program, and we were seeing that a lot of those same folks were coming to us because they were really afraid of um, being evicted or losing housing, and it just had a, a terrible type of ripple effect. And of course, uh, we have to mention the difficulties with healthcare here because uh, although many go to uh, community clinics, uh, it's very difficult to get the kind of help that is adequate, particularly in this time of coronavirus for so many, uh, especially the undocumented. And let, let's also talk about housing because there are many who are being evicted, aren't there? Well, fortunately, there was also immediately when the pandemic uh, started and we went into shelter in place and the emergency orders, um, there were other leaders who had the foresight to start calling for moratoriums on evictions. And fortunately, in Oakland, at least we had the strongest uh, moratorium in the state. But, you know, as things have progressed and things started to open open up again, um, we've seen di different jurisdictions doing different things. Um, and so in some places, people don't have the same protections. Um, there were holes in the state protections. And so um, we're still having to advocate and fight for um, them to continue, for jurisdictions to continue to hold those moratoriums in place. And then what we're really concerned about is mass evictions once um, those moratoriums are lifted and folks, you know, who haven't been able to work during the pandemic um, aren't able to pay those thousands and thousands of dollars in Bay Area rents. Um, and I just want to highlight that, you know, um, probably the folks that are most impacted, uh, again, are um, the, the folks like indigenous migrants and our black communities that already faced, you know, historical um, and systemic and institutional um, type of racism and other systems that already have held them in a, whole, in a vulnerable position. And this just really compounds to that. It also uh, needs to be pointed out in terms of housing that uh, you've got in here in California about two or three times the national average in terms of people being crowded, uh, doubling up or tripling up. That's according to Public Policy Institute, and it makes it all the more likely where vulnerability to coronavirus uh, is the case. And I wanted to also ask you about detainment, uh, particularly ICE detainment, because I know that's something that you've been working against in uh, these detention centers. You've got undocumented immigrants who are treated more like criminals in many ways. They're thrown in jails, and that includes children. They're packed in there, and again, it makes them more vulnerable to coronavirus. Uh, I'm wondering at this point, and no fresh air, no uh, pro problems with PPE equipment, uh, masks, social distancing, all of the things that make them increasingly more vulnerable. What can be done at this point, or what's being done? So that's a good question. You know, generally, um, we are not funded for the type of advocacy work that we're having to do under the pandemic, but we know that we have to do this. Um, we're generally funded to do, you know, legal representation for individuals and families. But 
this is so critical and so crucial that um, we've had to step up in these sort of advocacy efforts. And so um, we have a team of attorneys who work with uh, detained non-citizens who are detained by ICE in the Department of Homeland Security. And that team is led by a fabulous attorney, uh, Lisa Knox. And um, they have you know, done everything from car caravans, uh, protests, and we have signed a million petitions. And we've really been advocating to have folks that are detained um, released. You know, one thing that people don't understand is they look at this sort of ICE detention as people are, are, they are jails. So people assume that they're criminals, but they're not. They're being held for administrative violations in most cases, or, or in all cases, because um, even if somebody had done some type of criminal uh, time or before, once they're in ICE custody, they're, be, they're being detained for um, administrative violations. And so, like you said, in those detention centers, um, you know, they're closed spaces without air. Um, the detainees um, are not allowed to really, there's no way for them to social distance. Um, they, for a long time, haven't been given PPE. And it's really, you know, forcing them to be in a situation where um, it, not only are they vulnerable to getting the virus, but people are getting the virus in detention, and they're just trapped in there, and they have no way to protect themselves. And there have been some deaths in those uh, ICE detention centers since the pandemic started. And again, we're talking with Carolina Martin Ramos, Director of Programs and Advocacy with Centro Legal de la Raza. And uh, Danae Joseph is uh, immigrants' rights advocate and DACA recipient. And uh, I'm wondering if you could address this ongoing problem of detainment as you see things, Danae. Absolutely. So one of the things that we've seen at the onset of this year, we actually saw a letter from 150 Cameroonian women at the T. Don Hutto facility. And most recently, we saw another video in which five immigrant women at the Irwin County Detention Center speak up about COVID-19 and their concerns there. And the problem lies in these individuals were already impacted by a system that neglected their me medical health as well as their mental health. And now we're seeing in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, them being disproportionately impacted that much further because these conditions aren't meant for human survival. They simply aren't. We've seen case after case in which immigrants have died while in custody as a result of folks not getting them the treatment that they need right away. And so when we have things like 150 women writing a letter in which they're saying they've asked for help repeatedly and the guards have ignored them, right? There's this purposeful lack of concern for their migrant lives. And that should be concerning to all of us as we're seeing them document, right? And they're putting their lives on the line to do do this work. After these women released that letter, most of them were transferred from the facility, making sure that they had to face some sort of consequence for their action and for their bravery. So these things have been going on long before. Um, I think what we're witnessing now is a purposeful neglect of giving these communities exactly what they need to be able to survive and to thrive in the midst of this pandemic. And what do you see as the impact of the fact, uh, as I alluded to in the introduction, uh, that U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the federal agency that actually processes immigration applications and mm. is, is planning furlough of over two-thirds of its staff because of budget concern in the coming month. Now, this 
will affect or delay citizenship, green card applications, asylum cases that are being ple ple uh, that are that are in the process, and so forth. Right, absolutely, and not to forget DACA as well. I'm a DACA recipient, yeah, and I was most mention recently. That. Yeah, and most recently, I had to send in my Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals application renewal all over again. Mind you, I had just renewed last year, but because we just recently faced the possibility of DACA being rescinded and deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, fortunately, it wasn't. Um, but we also don't have a definitive answer, right? Meaning that this administration can still decide to move forth and get rid of the program completely via memorandum. So there's so much up in the air. And so for 700,000 people like me who are DACA recipients, we're currently facing the uncertainty of our future in this country. We're also not sure as to what the status of our applications are. I sent in my application a little bit more than a month ago. And usually at this point, I would have heard back already as to whether or not I'm being granted another two years. But like you mentioned, due to those furloughs, we simply don't know what will happen and that is destructive to our communities because there's people whose lives are on the line there's DACA recipients immigrants right asylum seekers who are currently providing for their families and so it's not just us that are impacted and I think when we have USCIS when we have these this administration decide to take the steps that they take they often think that it only hinders us as immigrants right but more often than not us as immigrants are caring for our citizen family members. And so they're being disproportionately impacted by those furloughs as well too. Because if we're unable to get a decision, that means that our status is up in the air. That means that we're unable to continue with the jobs and careers that we're a part of. There's so many potential consequences. And that could also mean that folks are up for detention and deportation, right? There's so much that's on the line that I feel like when that decision was being made just wasn't considered and it wasn't a factor, and there's millions of lines, lives on the line. Today, let me get your response to a comment that has just come in from a listener. I'd like to hear what you have to say to this listener who says, quotes me, actually, says, Michael just said, you've got undocumented immigrants being treated like criminals, and this listener says they are criminals. What do you say to that hmm. kind of thinking? What I say to that is that these are individuals who are simply seeking access to a better life, right? Imagine that they're now being held in detention centers, which a lot of folks have mentioned the correlation to concentration camps. And that's exactly what we're looking at. We're looking at modern day concentration camps in which children are being separated from their parents. This is a human rights issue. This isn't an us versus them issue. We're looking at a breakdown of system, at a breakdown of laws and a refusal to grant people their fundamental human right, which is to migrate and to seek asylum. That is something that is a lawful process in this country. So the refusal to be able to grant it or to even consider it is highly problematic and shouldn't just be alarming for individuals who are impacted by it. It should be um, alarming for any one who considers themselves to be an advocate for this human race that we're, we're a part of. And so when, when I hear people say um, that that act is illegal, what we have to remember is that no human being is illegal, right? We are all humans at the end of the day, no matter what classification we may assign. Borders are actually a social construct. This world wasn't made in borders. The militarization of our borders was something that happened as a result. It wasn't at the formulation of this world. 
And again, Danae Joseph is an immigrant's rights advocate and DACA recipient, and you, our listeners, may want to weigh in here. If you are an immigrant struggling with the coronavirus pandemic, we do want to hear from you. And to all our listeners, if you have questions or comments about the way immigrants are faring, please feel free to join us now. Our toll-free number is available, and the number for your calls is 866-733-6786. That's toll-free from Merver or however you're listening to the forum program, 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. And Farida Javala Romero, if I can go back to you for a moment, Farida, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about uh, the detainment of immigrants uh, that we were talking about. Uh, there have been essentially requests made, pleads made to the governor and has there been really any response from the governor or legislators on this? So um, here at KQED, my, my colleague uh, Taiki Hendricks has been following up uh, on the uh, issue of COVID and ICE detention more recently. But uh, like Danea was saying, I mean, this is a concern that uh, advocates, immigration advocates and others had uh, when the pandemic was uh, starting to take shape and we were realizing how uh, difficult the situation was gonna become for, for everyone. Um, ICE has had a, a record of terrible medical care uh, for detainees in several of its detention centers. And these are, you know, findings of the uh, own government watchdogs, you know, so they didn't have the best medical care to begin with, or or acceptable medical care. And then uh, the concern was, of course, that because of close quarters, and then, you know, I've heard things from detainees, like they, they uh, just get like a little bit of free soap uh, from the detention facility, but then they have to buy with their um, commissary dollars uh, soap to wash their hands and many don't have the money. And so the conditions are very difficult for people to really protect themselves inside detention centers. And we have seen like an uptick of, of cases. I believe now it's like 752 detainees that currently have uh, COVID in custody. And so uh, the request was for um, ICE to exercise its discretion to release people from detention centers who are most vulnerable to the disease and who are not dangerous, you know, who don't have like a criminal record or wouldn't, wouldn't be, you know, uh, risking, it wouldn't be a danger to society if they were outside, you know, monitored and tracked in some other way while they uh, attend their immigration court hearings. Um, so so, so it's something that people have been asking for for many months now, and um, but politicians we, may be, excuse me, for the concern about yes. their transmitting. Uh, is that is that, does that have to be seen as part of this whole equation? The concern about them transmitting. You mean that people the inside detention centers? Yeah, that they're transmitting the coronavirus to other to other detainees. No, you're talking about letting these people out of what amounts to a oh, jail. Oh, I haven't seen that as a main concern. I think it's just, um, you know, pressuring ICE to take these uh, steps that they have the power to do. And I know, I mean, like, for example, to, uh, today, uh, a lawmaker, lawmakers in California have been, um, you know, asking, some of them have been asking for these, um, for ICE to take the these steps of reviewing, you know, whether people really need to be detained or uh, and to let them go when they don't need when they don't absolutely need to be held in detention centers. And I know um, uh, Bonta here from the Bay Area, uh, Assemblyman Rob Bonta was was gonna, you know, uh, propose something today on that. 
Well, when we return, we'll hear from uh, you, our listeners. We'll hear more about the status of immigrants. Uh, and we're talking about documented and undocumented. And if you are an immigrant and you're struggling with the coronavirus pandemic, we want to hear from you. We want to hear how you're faring. And if you have questions or comments, you can join us now. The toll-free number again is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about immigrants and how they're faring in the wake of the pandemic that we are in. And if you have something you'd like to add to this conversation or if you have a question or if you're an immigrant struggling with the coronavirus pandemic in one way or the other, we do want to hear from you. And you can join us toll free at 866-733-6786. Again, the number for your calls is 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org, talking with Danae Joseph, immigrants' rights advocate and DACA recipient, and Carolina Martin Ramos, who is director of programs and advocacy with Centro Legal de la Raza, and Farida Jabala Romero, who is an immigration reporter with KQED News. And uh, Frida, I'm inclined to ask you if you can maybe give us a picture of, uh, well, small business uh, immigrants and how they're faring in this, uh, because I know you've been out there uh, sort of gathering uh, opinions and talking to so many people. Uh, I'm just wondering how they're faring in general, if we can talk about that, because there were uh, actually some funds from the Small Business Administration up to about $2 million. And you've got a lot of small business store owners and so forth who are here and uh, how they're getting along, how they're making it in the coronavirus era that we're in. So um, when I spoke with um, small business owners who are immigrants, it was mostly during the beginning of the shelter in place orders, you know, those uh, first um, couple of months. Um, it's crazy that it's uh, it's taken so long already. Right. But um, uh, so what what I heard was, you know, of course, like immigrants in areas like the Fruitvale in Oakland, you know, who own businesses, um, they were being hit like really hard. You know, their sales were were down tremendously, um, and um, and many of them were just wondering if their businesses would would survive. And that has been an ongoing challenge for a lot of uh, small business owners, not just immigrants, of course, but. Um, you know, uh, a lot of um, immigrant business owners also cater to immigrant communities, right? And um, I've heard really interesting stories uh, from uh, grocery store owners, for example, who are seeing this double hit uh, to their businesses of uh, not being able to uh, get enough supply of the basics, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic when uh, people were rushing to grocery stores and supermarkets to buy, you know, every last piece of the toilet paper and you know pasta and rice bags um, that that these uh, smaller grocery stores that cater to uh, to lower income immigrants especially they weren't able to get enough of, of those supplies uh, and they were also seeing higher prices from distributors and sometimes manufacturers and at the same time they were seeing that the clients that they serve were you know really um, 
uh, going through a very difficult time financially. Many of them had lost their jobs. Uh, and so and so we're seeing, you know, how um, immigrant uh, small business owners uh, have been hit in many different ways uh, uh, by, by this pandemic. And, and many of them have not been able to get enough, you know, help that that's available. I've just been told that our phones are having some problems. So if you have something you'd like to say, maybe the best way to get through to us now would be simply to email us forum at kqed.org. But let me go back, Carolina Martin Ramos, to you. Uh, we're talking about people uh, who are going through a great deal. And I'm wondering to what extent it makes it hard to recognize, well, what we could call maybe policy attacks or certainly things that are not in the best interest of this population. Well, unfortunately, um, under this current administration, the Trump administration, there have been constant um, multi-level attacks on the immigration system and on non-citizens. So, you know, it started with the Muslim ban, and we have seen attacks on our asylum system. Even though we're in a pandemic right now, this administration is trying to gut our asylum laws um, and deny non-citizens due process in removal or deportation proceedings. Um, you know, they have separated uh, parents from children who are, who are asylum seekers with viable asylum claims. I actually worked on the matter of Miss L federal litigation and traveled to Guatemala to find parents that were separated from their kids and um, heard terrible stories, took declarations for the federal litigation and heard terrible stories about how their um, rights were violated by uh, immigration officials. So this is, you know, something like, you know, akin to like trying to plug a dam with multiple holes. This um, administration is ruthlessly attacking non-citizens right now and, and through DACA and so, so many ways I can't even list. But I really, if you don't mind, I'd really like to sort of in this also address what your um, caller had, had said about, um, oh, well, they're criminals. I want to be really clear. I'm an immigration attorney who has practiced for over a decade in immigration law. I also am a former asylum officer who attended government the federal boot camp for asylum officers and adjudicated asylum cases. So I understand these laws pretty well. The who you're talking about, these non-citizens, even though they're detained, are not criminals. They are being held for administrative violations. So basically our immigration system, which was created, if you look at the history of our immigration system, it was created during times of xenophobia and racism, where initially it was the anti-Chinese period where we started creating immigration laws and people had to have a white witness in court. Now that has turned into this patchwork of immigration laws that we have now, but it's still administrative law, not under the umbrella of criminal law. And so it's akin to, to you know, having a license. So if somebody comes to me and they tell me as an immigration attorney, oh, this person is illegal, that has no legal meaning for me. I need to know what type of visa, what type of license do they have or do they not have? And then I know what bundle of rights they have or what... Um, you know, rights flow from that license and whether they're in violation. So the folks that are detained are not detained for criminal violations. They're detained for basically, you know, going hunting without a hunting license, driving without a driving, without the right type of driving license. These are licenses. These are administrative violations. They are not criminals. And Carolina Martin Ramos is Director of Programs and Advocacy for Centro de la Legal de la Raza and uh, 
Let me, before I go to some comments that are coming in, and we'll try to get some calls on here if we can, let me go back to you, Danae Joseph. Uh, Danae Joseph, again, is an uh, immigrants' rights advocate and is a DACA recipient, and I think it's safe to say we talked about the Supreme Court in the last hour that the court decision doesn't necessarily change the economics for DACA recipients, uh, nor does it change, for that matter, the kind of xenophobia that many who have had to endure and have had to put up with. I wanted to ask you, though, if I could, uh, Danae, about com communities of non-Spanish-speaking immigrants. Um, they're also not getting these messages on COVID. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of emphasis, obviously, on Latino uh, immigrants because they are, are the greatest sufferers in numbers when it comes to COVID. But there are language barriers and difficulties that really apply to just about every immigrant group, doesn't it? Right, absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I'm a DACA recipient from Belize, Central America. I am a Black woman. And that is a conversation that's not often had when we talk about immigration and immigrant rights and who immigration impacts in this country. And so as a result, the Black immigrant community are often left to suffer in silence, meaning that there's things that are happening to the community disproportionately that isn't currently being brought up in these conversations. When we think of the impact of COVID-19 in the communities that it's impacted, the largest population who has been impacted is the Black community. And so imagine that you tie that to the fact that folks already aren't being able to access the resources necessary to survive COVID, but now they're fearing whether or not ICE is cooperating with hospitals or with the places that are doing the testing, because that is a fear that lingers in many of our communities, where folks, even though here in California, you know, we've had a lot of localities say, no, just come and get the testing necessary. We're not turning anyone back. These are decades of fear, right? Decades of fear that has simmered in our community that has allowed many of us to believe that our lives don't matter in the context of the resources that are being provided that we, you know, contributed to by and large. And so as a result of that, we have the Black immigrant community. And immediately after after the DACA decision, you know, came down from the Supreme Court, the governor held a conversation with myself and four other individuals. And I'm grateful that he provided the space for that. And I'm grateful that he's had the foresight to work to get $75 million, considering that many of our immigrant brothers and sisters were left out. DACA recipients were able to receive funding from the CARES Act, um, or should I just say a return on our tax investment? from the CARES Act, but for everybody else who isn't a part of that 700,000, right, they were left to fend for themselves because what we saw was a purposeful, right, refusal to grant even mixed status families funding from the CARES Act. And we also saw a very purposeful way of refusing people and their resources, college students, right, because we saw that the CARES Act was able to touch colleges and universities so that they could in turn give that funding to some of the students who are disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. What was turned around is that there was a stop right, by the Department of Education. There was a stop to them being granted anyone who is uh, undocumented or a non-citizen from being able to receive those resources. And we really have to talk about that because well, I'm it's glad intentional. You bring that up. 
because the CARES Act and the stimulus checks did not go to, I mean, they simply omitted the undocumented. We're talking about a quarter of the farm workers in California. We're also talking about 8% of the service workers uh, yes. uh, who work in, in, in some form of production or another when it comes to food and the things that we are all reliant upon and dependent on. Mm. I just wanted to sort of insert that important point here. And thank you, Danae. I want to bring also a caller aboard, and that's Rochelle. Rochelle, join us. We're getting a call through. Good morning. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. I would like to say that this whole debacle is a direct result of the money-making greed of the for-profit prisons. My husband's an immigration attorney, and for years I've seen the gradual change of people being able to get, um, people being able to pay for, uh, you know, to get out of of, um, these prisons to them being unable to because the prisons want to hang on to these people and milk the, the American public for every penny they can. And that is why immigrants in recent history and the Republicans who pay for the president to through the CCA and these other for-profit prisons directly have impacted the incredible nightmare that we're facing now with the imprisonment of people who are not criminals, but in fact are people seeking justice in America. All right, Rochelle, I thank you for that statement and appreciate very much hearing from you. I'm going to go to some comments that are coming in, and there are people who have questions, and I hope that uh, our excellent panel can answer some of these questions. Let me begin with a listener, and uh, I'll go to you on this, Farida, who writes, uh, my wife and I are going through the green card process. My wife is here legally and has a working permit while we are being reviewed for her green card. She works as a server in the restaurant industry and has had her hours and wages cut by 70%. I heard she is eligible for unemployment for lost earnings during the pandemic, but I don't want to jeopardize our green card hopes by taking government assistance before we have our green card interview. Please help me understand some of my options. Can you help here, Farida? So I'm not an immigration attorney, and given that Carolina <laughs> is trained as one, maybe she would be able, uh, better able to answer. Um, but as far as I understand it, the state of California has said that you know applying for unemployment benefits for people who um, are are, are um, applying for green cards as well does not count as a public charge. Um, and so uh, it, it seems to me that, that she would be able to apply without, you know, any risk of um, uh, to her immigration prospects in the future. But I would definitely defer to an immigration attorney. Yeah, to, to I think Farida has it right, though, doesn't she, Carolina? Well, I, I, I actually am more cautious. I would say that it's going to involve an individual analysis. Again, it's like you're looking at each person's uh, license or visa or, or what they whatever they have or don't have and trying to figure out the collateral consequences. And then she's really going to need an individual analysis from an attorney. And then that attorney can explain the risks and benefits because, you know, things are changing there. We gave advice to people, you know, a few years ago, and then the Trump administration came in and, you know, the advice I gave to a trafficking victim five years ago is no good anymore. And now they're at risk for something I told them they were safe for. So really, I really, really encourage people to do see an attorney get an individual analysis to understand your specific risks and benefits and then you're going to have to decide what you want to do carolina let me uh ask you for a response to um another listener who um 
because you, you spoke uh, rather eloquently about law breaking and so forth in terms of the law. And this is Todd who writes, uh, uh, I, I feel like the response of those who say they are breaking the law is inadequate. The response just given will not change minds. The response should emphasize that the individuals in question did not break any laws as they were too young. Can an infant even break the law? No, their parents may have broken the law and there is a second critical conversion around uh, what our law should be, but the case of DACA recipients is simple and clear. They have not broken a U.S. law, and that's certainly correct. Carolina? Well, I think there's, you know, a sort of general um, legal, you know, idea about, you know, children and minors not be not being able to knowingly you know intelligently willfully um violate laws and so that should apply here and it does in fact in certain immigration related case law you know um where minors are brought in by their parents or other adults um you know, if they perhaps they make a, a claim, a false claim to U.S. citizenship at the border, at a port of entry, um, if they were a minor and they didn't understand what they were doing, that isn't going to be held against them in the same way that it would be held against an adult. But it's just um, strange to me how people um, really have focus in on undocumented immigrants as um, one sort of monolithic group. Um, a lot of the people we're talking about are asylum seekers, right? And so um, you really have to look at our asylum laws, like people coming in, you know, through the caravans. These are people, many of whom had viable asylum claims, and then they're detained. Um, once they're processed at the border, they're detained, and then they have their case adjudicated before an immigration judge. And so in that context, those are those people actually want to have their day in court. They want to be able to see an immigration judge or an asylum officer. Unfortunately, right now, as we speak, the Trump administration is trying to um, just gut the, our immigration laws, which, you know, involves our, our um, legal obligations under international law and our own laws. And so he's trying to, the Trump administration is trying to cut off the first stages of that process where people uh, seeking asylum, asylum seekers are able to speak with an asylum officer. And if they don't agree with that asylum officer's decision, then they have a right to have it reviewed by a judge. And now they're trying to just eliminate that. And, you know, along with all of the other attempts they've made to keep people, um, you know, from entering the country, for instance, through the MPP program where people are camped in the streets of Tijuana now. Well, here's a listener who makes a distinction. He says, as I learned at Hastings, that College of Law, I presume, decades ago, there are two kinds of crime. One crime is malum in se, which means the act is wrong by its nature. The other is malum prohibitum, which means the act is a crime because it is prohibited, not wrong by its essence. The crime of being undocumented is clearly malum prohibitum. But if I can go back to you, Danae, uh, and again, uh, we're, we're talking to Danae Joseph, who's uh, not only an immigrants' rights advocate, but a DACA recipient. Let me get a response from a listener named Bernie from you today. Bernie writes, can you ask your DACA recipient guest if she is advocating for open borders? And if she is not, then should not people who come or stay here illegally in violation of our immigration laws face some kind of punishment, including incarceration and or deportation? 
what I'm asking for is for this nation to do what it promised and what is in the framework of its law to do, which is consider asylum seekers. Asylum is legal in this country. I will say that again. Asylum is a legal process in the United States of America. And so all we're asking is for the folks who have bona fide claims to asylum to be considered as such and to be able to do so freely with their families in the United States until they can hear back the status of their asylum case. And so when we have these conversations about what is illegal and what is not, I think we have to consider the fact that asylum is a fundamental process in this country. And what we're seeing that is actually the illegal process is that this country is now refusing to abide by its own laws. And that is what we need to take into consideration because these folks that are being held in concentration camp conditions, right, are being prohibited of seeking their asylum right. And so we need to consider that and consider the fact that we're further traumatizing the immigrant children and their families when in fact we should be aiding them and classifying them as the rightful asylum seekers that they are. Well, let me read a comment from Leslie that sort of ties in with your sentiments. Uh, Leslie writes, sadly, what the immigrants want is irrelevant. However, what they provide to our economy is definitely not irrelevant. They provide the backbone of services which we depend on every day to deny this essential block of workers the right of citizenship so they can be exploited and suffer ongoing intimidation is to perpetuate a form of slavery from our past that continues to plague our country. We are better than this. Our immigration system should be fixed so essential workers are voting citizens. Otherwise, our democracy is a sham. That's from Leslie. And this is from Julie. Another question for, me, for you, I think, today. Julie writes, I wonder if people are entering the U.S. illegally because it is too difficult to enter legally. How hard is it? to get a U.S. work permit or to apply for asylum or to start the immigration process from people's home countries. Maybe that's where we need to start, make it easier to enter and stay legally and people won't need to enter illegally. Mm, very valid point. And first and foremost, I'd like to start by addressing Leslie's point, which is completely valid. She's right. When we think about who are the essential workers in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic, one that we wouldn't have fathomed at the end of 2019 and at the very beginning of this year, 2020, we would have never imagined that we would be in the positions that we're in right now. And when we look at the forefront, at the people who are providing crucial services, to help us as we do this work from home. We must look to our immigrant brothers and sisters and thank them for that essential work that they're doing. And that means from the farm workers who are doing this work on the ground to my friends who are DACA recipients and are serving as the healthcare providers, right? And so we see immigrants playing a very crucial role across the board in our support of this country during such uncertain times because this is our home as well too. So Leslie's absolutely Absolutely right. And to the second point of, you know, whether or not folks are in detention and currently having to navigate the process, or should I say the lack thereof, that we are, is because there's basically no process for folks to be able to quote unquote legally immigrate. We've seen time and time again with every temporary protected status that is in this country, deferred action, temporary protected status, which is TPS, DED, Deferred Enforced Departure. All of these things that have positive 
positively benefited the lives of immigrants who are in this country as undocumented people and then you know being seen as a temporary process has been stripped away so when you have an administration right that continues to tell people to do the right thing right if you just do the right thing then we'll be able to put you on a pathway to citizenship or at least allow you to remain in this country but yet you're stripping it away from tps recipients but yet you're telling daca recipients that even though we contribute 495 dollars every two years if you multiply 495 times 700,000, you'll see the millions of dollars and not just as a result of the renewal fees, but as a result of the taxes that we contribute into the United States, millions of dollars every year that some of us will never get back. So she's absolutely right in the point that we need to have more quote legal processes, right? That allows people to be able to migrate to this country. And we've seen time and time again, that it's easier for some immigrants than it is for others. When you have communities of color, this president has blatantly said that he would prefer immigrants from countries like Norway to countries like Haiti, which he referred to as a blank hole country. And you could figure out what the blank hole is um, in this nation. So you're telling us that you prefer European white immigrants and you don't want country, people coming from countries like Haiti and from the African continent because you see them as less than, right? So this president is literally telling us exactly what he wants immigration to look like in this country. And what he means by that is he wants to see white immigrants only. Again, today, Joseph is director, uh, excuse me, is uh, immigrants right advocate and a DACA recipient. And I'm going to read a comment from a listener named Karen. Um, she writes, in our community of Sonoma, which has a large and much beloved and valued Latino population I see all over town, and especially among groups of workers, that Latino families are not wearing masks except in supermarkets where it's required. For those with limited English, do they not have the opportunity to read or hear about virus protection? According to Press Democrat, 75% of our country's virus cases are Latino. Uh, what do you say to that, Carolina Martin Ramos? Well, I would say that, you know, this may be, uh, you know, the result of um, folks being really uh, left out of the community and marginalized for so many years, um, you know, uh, non-citizens, uh, Spanish-speaking um, uh, immigrants or indigenous language speaking immigrants, you know, have been left out of the circles of safety and care. And so um, why would we expect um, that, um, that they, they would be sort of participating in um, protections the same way that, that more privileged people are, right? And so, um, we have our offices in the Fruitvale District of Oakland, where it's the largest Mom Mayan community in uh, the United States. And, you know, many of those folks are refugees and um, speak only Mom Maya or Maya Mom language. And so, you know, besides sort of the obstacles of gaining understanding, um, you know, besides the linguistic ob obstacles, you know, many of those folks um, are refugees because they have suffered uh, state-sponsored terror and genocide and civil war in Guatemala as indigenous peoples. And so, um, you know, they, they've, they've really been marginalized by us and then they have, you know, their own trauma and there are, you know, all these layers of things that would make it difficult for uh, folks then to suddenly um, be, you know, uh, participating at the same level when they've been excluded for so long. 
And let me read a comment from Erna who writes, I think it would be for the health of all that we stop keeping people in crowded, unsafe places like detention centers. I consider this a health issue for all, not just those detained or working at detention centers because of what happened in the 1918-1919 flu pandemic. In that pandemic, the virus mutated to become more deadly during its resurgence. We should be disassembling all places that make it easier for the virus to multiply and hence mutate, except the most essential that we can afford to properly protect like medical facilities. And I should mention that there's an unprecedented surge of cross-border corona cases as well, mostly Americans, of course. Uh, let me go back to you, Farida. We've got little time left here, but in your reporting, what comes to the surface now as really the primary needs for this immigrant population that we keep talking about in this time? Well, I mean, it definitely depends on how the economy um, does and how long it's going to take. I mean, many, many, many people, many families with immigrant workers are, uh, you know, hoping that they will be able to work again. Um, and then if that doesn't happen, then I think we will uh, see hopefully more moves by um, uh, local governments and states to try to fill in some of the gaps in terms of the safety net uh, because it is going to be a, a huge, huge impact. Um, and uh, these, uh, you know, immigrant people are connected to our community. Like many of the caller, like the caller said, um, and, and the guest said also, um, Immigrants are connected to U.S. citizens and 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 others. You know, we're gonna have so to leave it with that connection, Farida. Thank you so much for being with us. That's Farida Jambala Romero, KQED News. Thanks to Carolina Martin Ramos of Centro Lego de la Raza. Thanks to Danae Joseph, a DACA recipient. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.